Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarvey and with me as always is the transfer guru, Duncan Castles. Today in the pod, we'll be bringing you news of managerial menu ground uh, changes, perhaps at Real Madrid, PSG, maybe even other places as well. As well as news on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and transfer plans at Manchester United. And of course, the continuing saga of Leo Messi. Will he, won't he? Will he, won't he? Well. We might be able to give you some knowledge on that as well. And of course, the Donkey Award, as this is Friday's podcast. Duncan, we're going to start with the Santiago Bernabeu, where Zinedine Zidane is under increasing pressure to retain his position as head coach after home and away defeats to Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League. Interesting statistic, I think, for anyone, uh, and that is that Real Madrid have now lost more Champions League games since Cristiano Ronaldo left the club than they did in his entire career there. Now, that tells you something. Uh, Perhaps they are pining for the Portugal captain in terms of success. Of course, he was a five-time winner of the competition while playing in the shirt of Real Madrid. Contenders for the job are, as you would expect, fairly... Obvious, Maurizio Pochettino, we understand, has been in contact with Madrid President Florentino Perez in the last week. Now, this is not unusual. Uh, we have reported in the podcast uh, regularly that Pochettino has had several conversations with Perez regarding the job um, at Madrid. But of course, also, Max Allegri, the former Juventus manager, is also available. But coming into the frame, uh, because also of poor results recently, as well in in Ligue 1 and in the Champions League, um, Thomas Tuchel, big time as we know him, is under threat as head coach of Paris Saint-Germain. This all adds up to quite an interesting uh, situation going into the January transfer window. As we know historically, Duncan, uh, managers tend to either be given the vote of confidence by being given a budget for the January window to improve results, or the vote of no confidence in which they lose their job and someone else is brought in. What's your take on Madrid, Duncan? It's uh, a job which, of course, is always um, highly contentious with regards to what your tenure is going to be and how long you're going to be there. But it seems to me that Zidane is someone who um, has constantly, almost since he returned for his second spell in charge, been under scrutiny and indeed under uh, the questions of 
both the media and the fans with regards to performances. Does Zidane's spell or two spells as um, head coach at Real Madrid are actually quite remarkable because he's probably only had a period of about six months in amongst all of those uh, all that time that he's been in charge of the club, whereas his future hasn't been in question. There's always been, when he got the job, people didn't expect him to retain the job very often, uh, for very long. Uh, and he's had periods of underperformance, which he's always managed to turn around um, and turn around quite spectacularly uh, in terms of titles won um, at Madrid. The one thing you can say about this is he must be used to the discussion over his future because it's happened to him again and again and again. I think you put your finger on something that is substantially different at Real Madrid, which is they do not have the best player in the world. Um, and they are attempting to get the the heir apparent um, to Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Leo Messi and Kylian Mbappe. But um, I think in normal circumstances, that would have been done already if Madrid didn't have the budgetary constraints that have been inflicted on them by previous bouts of spending, by La Liga determining and saying you cannot go above a, a, a certain spend level for the season. And obviously the effects of the COVID pandemic, the, they would have acted in the summer market, whether it would be to get Kylian Mbappe, whether it would be to get Neymar, um, who has also been a, a repeat target for Florentino Perez, something would have happened. But now you've got this kind of um, schizophrenic squad at, at Madrid where you have an ageing cadre of players who have won a lot of titles um, and are not enjoying being down uh, the table in La Liga and um, being in danger of exiting the Champions League um, from what should have been a relatively uh, comfortable group um, in the sense that Shakhtar Donetsk, Borussia and Gladbach, you would expect a normal Real Madrid team to qualify ahead of them with Inter taking the other place. As it is, Inter bottom of that group, Madrid's second bottom with seven points, then Shakhtar who, as you say, beat, have beaten Madrid home and away. And Muchin back top with that final game to be played between um, the Germans and Madrid to decide who, uh, which of them, probably, which of them qualifies for uh, the knockout stages. I would not bet against Zidane turning it around in that match because that has, as I said, been the pattern of his time as coach at Madrid. But as you've talked about on this podcast before, um, Zidane doesn't need eternal hassle of being in charge of the club. He's left once before. Financially, he doesn't need to manage. Um, you can see a situation where if, if the results don't go his way and that pressure increases internally and you have those players who have such a storied record in the Champions League, bringing it to Florentino Perez's consideration that actually the change that's required is the coach. And this typically is what happens in clubs of that dimension when things go wrong, they start blaming the coach. Then Perez makes the change. And this situation with managers, major managers being available, and on top of that, 
a number of major clubs considering changing manager. So you, you mentioned Paris Saint-Germain there. They are top of Lyon only just after a, a bad start. Tuchel isn't just under pressure because of results at PSG. He's under pressure because Leonardo, the sporting director, wants him out and wants his own man in as coach. And Tuchel is out of contract at the end of the season. Um, Pochettino, story we talked about in the podcast last year, I believe, um, once he saw the writing on the wall at Tottenham um, and was out of work, one of the first things he did was to travel to Qatar um, to spend time in the country and obviously to talk to the people who make the decisions, make the ultimate decisions about appointments at PSG. So it was a job that was on his list of potential next steps after Tottenham along with Juventus, club he supported as a boy, Real Madrid, Manchester United uh, and more latterly Barcelona. Um, now, Paris Saint-Germain being an option for him will alert Madrid because they know that Paris Saint-Germain, the sporting director, wants to change the coach. Manchester United are a factor there. Everyone knows that Ed Woodward and the Manchester United board have admired Pochettino for a long time. They've had conversations over a, number, a period of years. He was the alternative candidate when Jose Mourinho got the job back in 2016. He, I think it's fair to say, would be the popular choice of probably the majority of Manchester United supporters if Solskjaer has to go. So again, that element of do Manchester United stick with Solskjaer, who they say they're backing, um, who Edward Woodward talked uh, just a few weeks ago at Fans Forum uh, about the progress being made and that more had to be done, but they, they, their support for Solskjaer was strong. Or do they think, actually, if, we, if we're going to get Pochettino, we need to act now? And, and this, I think, is a, also a very typical occurrence in, in this kind of merry-go-round. What you have today is not Tuchel associating himself directly with the Manchester United job in the week in which he took PSG to Old Trafford and won 3-1, but um, a very senior journalist in German football uh, letting it be known, one, that Tuchel is interested in the Manchester United job and that Manchester United are interested Tuchel. So just reminding people that he is available and look what a good job he did at Old Trafford during the week. And um, maybe seeing, testing the water in terms of what the, the response of the supporters will be uh, and putting that additional uh, element uh, of doubt or consideration into the minds of the Glazers and Edward Woodward. One further problem for Zidane, Duncan, is that we understand that Sergio Ramos, the um, Real Madrid captain, held a meeting with only the playing squad at the club's training ground on Thursday to discuss and to ask them to speak their minds with regards to what they thought the problems were within the team, within the dressing room, and the responses he got were many, but also, and again I say troublesome for Zidane, that they felt the communication of uh, game plans and tactics had become muddled, 
Uh, they were not understanding what it was that Dan was asking them to do. And as a result, performances had dropped, uh, as we've seen in several games in the league already this season. Uh, and Ramos himself is very much uh, loyal to Zidane. However, uh, he is more loyal to the club and to Florentino Perez. He also, of course, remember uh, in a personal way, is in contract negotiations to extend his contract at the Santiago Bernabeu. Now, that does spell trouble uh, for Zidane because if Ramos decides to go uh, against Zidane and speak to Florentino Perez in, uh, in a negative way about the head coach, then Perez will certainly listen and most likely take action. So that, for me, seems to be something which Zidane needs to be worried about, even though he said after the defeat to Shakhtar Donetsk that he would fight to the end uh, in terms of his uh, tenure at Real Madrid. But it's still the case that the players can be more powerful than the coach. And also, they have a president who listens to the players and especially his talismanic captain. So it does seem that there's going to be a time from where um, Mauricio Pochettino, having uh, been the number one candidate for just about all the top jobs in European football uh, before he left Tottenham Hotspur, Duncan, he might have to give up his um, universal credit and go back into employment. <laughs> Look, I think uh, I think the COVID pandemic has is a productive one for managers like Pochettino because it has put a lot of the major clubs in European football uh, into situations where they cannot as easily buy themselves out of trouble as they usually do. There's quite a few of them dropped off usual le levels of performance. If you can't buy yourself out of trouble by buying players, then the, the economic solution um, the one that, that can get that radical change and um, hopefully satisfy demanding supporters is to change the manager. Um, you don't have to pay as much to, to sack incumbents and uh, you don't have to pay a transfer fee generally. Well, certainly for people like Pochettino who are out of work and Allegri who are out of work and, and Tuchel who most likely will be out of work at the end of the season don't have to pay any transfer fee you pay what they want for wages you pay to bring their assistance in and it um yeah i think it, it's it's made the situation and the opportunities for a big job to come up um quite significant at the moment and yeah I, it will be a surprise to me if pochettino goes beyond the next summer without being back in football and at one of these top clubs in European football. Which takes us nicely to Manchester and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who, as you've already mentioned, Duncan, suffered a 3-1 defeat to Big Tam Tuchel's PSG this week. It was um, quite comprehensive in the end in terms of the way PSG played, but there was a lot of positivity that Manchester United's played, just not in the terms of the finished article, uh, i.e. putting the ball in the net. How would you describe the way in which Manchester United played, Duncan, and also in terms of this very, very consistent, it seems like, you know, Groundhog Day, always at the wheel, always on the grass verge about to crash, 
oh, he's back at the wheel again, etc. It just seems to be an a, you know a lack of ability to convert good performances into good performances one game after another. Yeah, certainly there there is a a lack of consistency about the team. Um, I think an interesting interview actually with one of Solskjaer's players in the past week, um, Eric Bailly talking to Mundo Deportivo and, and being asked about the, the inconsistency of Manchester United and, and he said there have been moments for hope like the victory against Paris Saint-Germain, obviously the first one, the 2-1 win in Paris and then that level has not been maintained. Why has it not been achieved? That's a good question. In the dressing room it's not quite understood either. Um, so he's telling you that the players are, are struggling to comprehend what's going wrong and and that, that inconsistency they have. And and you know, Solskjaer after the game against against PSG this week said one that they didn't deserve to lose and two that he couldn't put the finger on the deciding factors. Um they had a couple of good chances in the second half that anti Martial um, wasted. One in particular was was quite profligate. They had a, an excellent shot from Cavani that came off the bar. But I think over the course of the game, Paris Saint-Germain winning was not undeserved. The deciding factor, I think, was blatantly obvious, which was Solskjaer's decision not to remove Fred after a first half in which he was extremely fortunate to remain on the pitch and obviously the the, the centre of attention there was the the headbutt on uh, Leandro Paredes that um, the referee went and looked at, on the VAR monitor at and decided was only meriting punishment with a yellow card, not a red card when I think the majority of commentators would say it was a clear red card and um, Fred was extremely lucky to get away with that. Interesting aside is that I don't quite understand how Orsato was able to give him a yellow card from watching the video because you're not supposed to use VAR to hand out bookings. Um, If he hadn't seen the original incident and he decides that it's not a red card, uh, bizarrely, then he should have just left it alone, not not, uh, booked. But that's, you know, the standard to see VAR protocols not being correctly applied in games of this level. But look, the way Fred played in that game, in the first minute of the game, he slid in studs up on, on Marco Verratti, got away with that. Ninth minute, he took out Kylian Mbappe. The 12th minute, he fouled Florenzi. The 16th minute, he then went had another foul on Paredes that he was excused. Um, on the 37th minute, he dived into another challenge dangerously with, with Paredes. This was after his yellow card um, for the headbutt and, uh, and Paredes was booked for it because he also went in dangerously. Um, he didn't do very much to control the way he was playing. Solskjaer's argument was that he, re- he kept him on the field because he was fundamental to Manchester United's midfield and their tactical approach. And you can un- again, you can understand that because his pressing is uh, he has been important for Manchester United in these Champions League games. Um, but his main major strength in those games is the kind of aggressive pressing and the way he pushes opponents. And if you're on a yellow card and you 
got to cons- consider here that Orsato goes in at half time, hears and looks at what the decision he made was and the response to it, and is thinking, actually, um, I probably was wrong not to red card him there. So when I have the opportunity to send him off, um, if he if he transgresses again, he will go, uh, which is what happened. Um, you can argue that Fred was unlucky in the actual second yellow card he got because um, because of the way um, he got the ball before he made contact with the opponent. But there's also an argument that he endangered the opponent in that challenge on Herrera. So um, you could see a booking being given for that in, in normal circumstances. But uh, the key element here is that Solskjaer had the opportunity to remove Fred from the game and, and retain the 11 men for Manchester United. He had a, a hugely strong bench from a central midfield uh, perspective. We talked about this in the last podcast that actually he's got some of the strongest central midfield options in European football. Um, he had Paul Pogba, uh, Nemanja Matic and uh, Donny van de Beek on the bench. Now, none of them are exact replacements for Fred, but they are all top quality midfielders. And um, as much as he obviously felt that he needed to keep Fred on for tactical purposes, that risk of getting him sent off and leaving them open to the PSG's counter-attacking was always going to be there. This is entirely under his control. It's a Champions League match where the likelihood of getting sent off um, for an incident like that, when you're playing the way Fred was playing, is high. It has cost them qualification for the Champions League uh, knockout stages so far. They have the opportunity against Leipzig to correct that. Um, It may cost them the decision to go for uh, an equaliser after PSG scored, may cost them um, first place in the group if both PSG and Manchester United win their final games because allowing PSG to go to 3-1 puts them ahead on the head-to-head. It's typical, I think, of Solskjaer's lack of ability to make simple judgments in these kind of games. I don't think there are many um, managers at Champions League level who who would have kept Fred on in those circumstances with the options he had on the bench. Um, It's a completely avoidable mistake. You can't do anything about uh, Martial missing uh, good chances to score goals other than leave Martial out of the team but he can certainly avoid any possibility of Fred being sent off by taking him off at half time commentators and friends of his like Jan Argy Fjortov if you look at their um, Twitter feeds during the game they were basically predicting that Solskjaer would have to take him off because of the circumstances yet he does this and I think this is part of a pattern that feeds into that inconsistency is that Solskjaer makes bad decisions that cost Manchester United results um, at the highest level. And it it all feeds back to the argument that Manchester United could get a superior manager in if they wanted to, but they're sticking with this cultural reboot idea. They're sticking with uh, the belief that they made progress and that um, they should continue with Solskjaer because it's the best option for them. Um, when it, 
it, it should be patently obvious by now that it's the, the fastest way to improve Manchester United's performances in these major competitions is to put a coach who doesn't make errors like Solskjaer makes in charge of the club. And speaking of the culture reboot, Duncan, um, do we expect Manchester United to invest in new players in January? Well, you have Woodward um, where he talked about the support for Solskjaer in this November 20th fans forum um, saying that we we said in April that we remain committed to strengthening the squad um, while being disciplined in our spending during the pandemic. I believe we delivered on that, saying again that uh, we made during the summer, taking our, our total net spending to over 200 million euros since the summer of 2019, more than any other major European club over that period. That's something he said to investors recently. Um, and he said, we will continue to support Oli with a planned long-term approach to recruitment focused on the summer windows. So I think that they, the focus on the summer windows is important there. Um, it's kind of a, a warning that they would prefer to do their business um, I, once they get into the major transfer market of the summer rather than do it in January. Um, my understanding is that they are looking uh, again in the positions that, that Solskjaer and the club wanted to strengthen in in this last window, so right wing and centre-back, um, and have not ruled out the possibility of doing a deal in January if the right player comes up at the right price. Um, but I think the likelihood of that happening is limited because, as we know, January windows are generally difficult ones to do business in. Clubs don't want to lose players. I think this January window is going to be one of the tightest we've ever seen. The majority of clubs are basically trying to offload or do deals at, at very low prices. So don't expect a lot of movement, which again makes it hard to pick off um, a top player, the player of the of the calibre that, um, that Solskjaer would want um, in that that shortened uh, uh, and pandemic-affected window that we're going into. Yes, I doubt very much that Jason Sancho is going to be available for 50 quid in January um, uh, or any other time for that matter, for that amount of money. We do have a situation which is ongoing at Barcelona and Lionel Messi. It's our information that Messi's father and agent, Jorge, has had a conversation with a leading agent in the past week regarding uh, the player's intentions in terms of would he move in January or would he uh, certainly move for free in next summer's window. And the conversation produced an answer of he was open to all options. This, interestingly, uh, was before the Barcelona interim president, Carlos Tusquets, uh, said in the last few hours that it was possibly a better solution for Barcelona to sell the Argentinian captain uh, in the summer window when Manchester City had offered a ex very, very lucrative contract plus a transfer fee plus Eric Garcia as reported on this podcast 
to Barcelona in uh, return for Messi's signature. Uh, it now seems to be the case that Messi needs to make a decision with regards to uh, whether or not he wants to move in January or whether he wants to wait until next summer and leave on a free transfer. Manchester City is certainly still uh, one of the options available to him. The contract uh, which was proposed to him, which includes an option to play at New York City uh, when he leaves uh, Manchester City uh, at any point, as well as um, a, an extended option to be part of City Football Group thereafter and possibly even playing elsewhere uh, at one of their nine owned clubs around the world um, is there. However, Paris Saint-Germain have since come into the equation yet again. Uh, the same agent who had the meeting with Jorge Messi also has spoken to PSG and PSG have made it clear that their contract negotiations with Neymar regarding an extension to his deal, given that Barcelona's financial restrictions look very much as if they will prevent Neymar returning to Camp Nou, um, but that Neymar has said he would be much more likely to uh, extend his deal with PSG should they manage to bring Messi, his old sparring partner, obviously at Barcelona, uh, to Parc de Prince uh, and play alongside him once again. Now, obviously, we're looking at two clubs in Manchester City and PSG who have the financial wherewithal to offer the kind of contract that Messi will be expecting in terms of what will likely be the last big deal of his career. He is now 33 years old. And also uh, the kind of level of football that he wants to be playing uh, in terms of the last few years of his career at the very highest level. Duncan, we've spoken a lot about this, Messi and his future. It seems almost inevitable now, I believe, that he will depart Camp Nou uh, in the next six months, if not indeed the next two months. Um, do you think he would prefer Manchester City above PSG, given that both clubs are similar in the fact that they are nation-state-owned, uh, funded by extremely um, wealthy uh, backing, but also two clubs who are desperate to win the Champions League? And of course, Messi himself we know, is desperate to win the Champions League another time before he departs at uh, the highest level of European football. Yeah, look, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to hear Neymar talk about his friend Messi this week um, and say, basically invite Messi to Paris Saint-Germain saying what I want most of all is to play with Messi again to be able to enjoy him once again on the pitch. He can play in my place. Uh, I have no problem with that. But I want to play with him next year, for sure. We have to do it next season. Um, look, if you're Jorge Messi and you want to maximise the, the deal for your final large contract, your son's final large contract in football, um, then what better situation to have than Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City going head-to-head -head against each other. As you say, Qatar and Abu Dhabi, 
the two richest um, backers of any football club in the world and direct political rivals, countries that are fighting a proxy war, um, competing for the biggest available prize in, in world football is a perfect scenario. Neymar is, of course, close to Messi. Um, it certainly doesn't do Messi's negotiating stance any harm to have this story of, of uh, Neymar inviting Messi back to Paris Saint-Germain um, in the papers. I think you're, you note something important in saying that Barcelona's interim president has for the first time said, we made a mistake in the summer um, from an economic perspective and not moving Messi on. Uh, that had never been admitted, although it was discussed internally. Those who listened to our podcast on that move and, and breaking the details of the 700 million euro offer from Manchester City Abu Dhabi to come to the Premier League will remember we said internally there was a debate at, in Barcelona and the argument was one, from an economic perspective, it would be good for Barcelona to let him go and two, um, from a sporting perspective, it might be time to let him go and rebuild the team around other players. Now you have that publicly stated, um, which is an indicator that people who are not going to be in charge at, at Barcelona long term because we're going to have a new presidential election, but people associated with the administration, again, preparing the ground for that exit, which they were only able to stop in the summer by um, forcing the Messis to take legal action to get out of the club, which is something that Leo Messi was not prepared to do. And, and of course, he talked about publicly. From a sporting perspective, What's the better choice for Messi? I think this is interesting here. If you have both Qatar and Abu Dhabi competing for your signature, is it better to go to Manchester City where you know the coach, although albeit you've had problems with them in the past, you know the directorate, you know the, the, um, the, the, the head of recruitment, the director of football, and you know the chief executive, and you know the setup will be as close to Barcelona as it's possible to be outside of Barcelona? Um, or do you go to Paris Saint-Germain where you are guaranteed to win the league, um, where the physical demands will be less than in English football, um, where some of those question marks that others have about Messi's ability um, to continue performing at the level he has you know, so incredibly performed at through large periods of career, um, whether those doubts uh, may be less relevant. And you know, I, I'm saying perhaps Messi doesn't have those question marks about playing in the Premier League and he feels he can handle it. But we, we, it has to be noted that Messi has talked publicly not that long ago about how football gets harder each year and he's not sure how many years he has ahead of him. So. Head to head, if the financial offers are the same, um, perhaps Paris Saint-Germain might be more attractive from the perspective of winning trophies and having a gentler end to his period in European football. But then again, he has talked about wanting to play in the Premier League, wanting to experience the Premier League. And if he wants that you know, greatest final challenge, then it, Manchester City taking on the other big clubs in England, there is no question that would um, 
be a more difficult sporting challenge for him than moving to PSG. Do you agree, Duncan, that it looks now almost inevitable that Messi will not end his career at the camp now? I don't think with Messi you can ever say something is inevitable. Um, it, this is a, a man who has flirted with Manchester City in particular on multiple occasions and never consummated that um, exit from Barcelona. He loves his life in Barcelona and his family loved their life in Barcelona. In fact, in that famous interview, he talked about how some of his children were crying when they, they discovered that he might be leaving there. So that there are things tying him to Spanish football. And, you know, the, the big, big element and question mark in this is the presidential election. So it's easy to see a presidential candidate playing on the, the line that he will keep Messi at the club, who is the fans' favourite, and then winning the election and offering Messi the, the kind of deal which will be huge, immense, on financial scale required to keep him there, um, and leaving him with the keys to the kingdom from a, a sporting perspective, which he's had for some time. So I, I don't think you can say for definite he will be leaving Barcelona until the contract is agreed and signed with the club he goes to. Well, we say that, Duncan, but um, two things I think are prevalent here in terms of uh, what exactly will make Messi's mind up um, regarding his future. Um, one, he was very recently effectively strong-armed into taking a significant pay cut on his very significant wages. Uh, which he agreed to on the basis that the club could actually be in extreme financial jeopardy if he didn't do that. So, first of all, he's taking apparently, so it's reported, up to 60% less of his salary before the end of this season than he would have done. Um, obviously, he only has one year, or sorry, less than one year of his contract left. The second is, we know that he is not a massive fan of Ronald Koeman. Okay, let's assume that the new president who comes in uh, after the elections at the end of January uh, wants a different coach, which Messi would approve of, rather than Koeman, that is. But maybe the coach isn't someone he necessarily wants to come there. So do the club move forward? not allowing Messi to be the most vocal in terms of decision-making at the club, in terms of things like the coach, etc., or transfers? Or do they decide to move forward and say, OK, Leo, um, this has all got to come to an end. You know, we're sorry it has to end this way, but you know, everything um, that's gone on, we do believe it's better for a break rather than for you to continue here. So therefore, you get to leave for free. So I think that's one of the aspects of this particular situation that has to be considered uh, because Messi has been all-powerful at Barcelona for some years now and uh, it does seem that uh, some of the administrators are becoming a little bit tired of being told what they should do by their best player. Absolutely, all of that's true, but those administrators are... Um, on their way out. Um, he 
we know that he'd made the decision to leave the club and he accepted uh, that offer from Manchester City Abu Dhabi, that offer to go to MLS after he'd played in the Premier League for a few years. Um, we know how unhappy he has been with the regime. He continues to to comment on um, things like him being held as the, the, the cause for all the problems at Barcelona. So we, we know there are big problems there. But um, the president's going to change. It's an open election with an unpredictable outcome. And Messi is a, is a valuable, very valuable piece on that chessboard if the candidate can convince him uh, to remain and be part of their new project. So that has potential mm. there. The, I think the other element here is if you look at the pattern of Messi's contractual um, negotiations with Barcelona, it has been one of extracting more and more money from the club um, time after time, renewal after renewal, and multiple people will tell you that. So I think you have to factor in oh, as he becomes a free agent, as he has Manchester City there, as he potentially has Qatar there, as he has presidential candidates um, suggesting what, what needs to be done to, to keep you there, that financial factors will be important to his father again, because that historically has been important to him. So all of these, I think, are, are open-ended, which is why I would say I personally would not want to commit to it being inevitable that he has left until I've heard from people close to him the deal is done, he definitely goes. Certainly, Leo Messi is the kingmaker on that particular chessboard uh, and has been for some time. Um, I wonder, Duncan, uh, looking forward to this weekend's Premier League football, if Jose Mourinho might checkmate their North London rivals, Arsenal, in the North London derby, in a situation where... Uh, Tottenham find themselves, uh, albeit on goal difference, at the top of the Premier League, and Arsenal are find themselves in 14th. Now, under Mauricio Pochettino, Tottenham came close to shifting the balance of power away from Arsenal in terms of uh, Premier League placings, but not in terms of trophies. Uh, this is an opportunity, I suppose, for Mourinho to establish Tottenham as the uh, first club in that part of the capital uh, and also perhaps to draw a close to the false dawn on Spurs' uh, well, let's just say uh, <laughs> the term Spursy has become one which describes a club which chokes uh, when they get close to uh, victory or indeed achievement. And uh, Mourinho is certainly, in his career, no choker nor a non-achiever. Uh, whereas Mikel Arteta is going through a really rough patch, actually. In fact, um, I almost feel like I should apologise for comments I made a month ago in the podcast where I was praising him for knowing exactly what he was doing. Uh, and since then, they've had five defeats and, and not doing so well themselves. But um, it's an intriguing situation. Tottenham at home, uh, allowing 2,000 fans, albeit, you know, however that's going to influence the game or not, but certainly a much more informed team than Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. 
uh, and also, of course, the opportunity to remain top of the division should they win um, and Liverpool uh, at least not score more goals than them and make a statement about where Spurs are, given that we are going coming into the most crucial um, part of the uh, first half of the season, which of course includes uh, a fixture congestion uh, and also um, the part of the season where most coaches will tell you that uh, after you come out of uh, January, mid-January going into the beginning of February, the table basically looks more or less like it's going to look at the end of the season. Um, okay, I think it's a, it's a tough game um, for Tottenham because of where Arsenal are at present and that, that, that poor run of results they've had. So Arteta's under pressure. Um, what better way to lift the pressure than to, to get a result against Tottenham when they're top of the league? Um, I think it's a tough game because Arsenal have been playing quite conservative football. Um, you know, the defensive side has been better than the attacking side for Arsenal recently. Um, Tottenham are clearly set up um, to be at their best on the counter-attack. Uh, it worked wonderfully for them against Manchester City. Um, in you saw, I think, Mourinho's attitude to these big games in the, the Chelsea match at the weekend, which was pretty balanced. If anything, probably Tottenham had the better of the, the first half, but certainly Chelsea had the better of the second half. And you could see Mourinho saying, well, a draw is a good result here. We're top of the league. If we can get through this game unbeaten, we take a point off one of the strongest teams in the division. If we can nick a goal on the break, which they almost did at the end of the game, they had the opportunity to win it there even better. But he he played the percentages. Uh, and my prediction would be he would play the percentages again in, against Arsenal, knowing the danger of the fixture. Uh, which, if you have two teams playing cautiously, um, can be harder to win those ones. And um, he will certainly want to avoid defeat, to avoid losing the momentum they've had in this season. So not an easy game. Um, I, I also think the the talk of them being title contenders is somewhat overblown. They are top of the division at present um, but this has been a bizarre season Liverpool are not doing as well as we'd expect them to do um, for obvious reasons Manchester City are well off the pace if you look at Tottenham's squad it's strengthened significantly in attack um, they've added a very good left back in, in Sergio Reguilon um, Hoiberg has been a strong signing for them in midfield, they definitely improved. But you know, if you step back, look at each squad in the division dispassionately, and say which is the most balanced squad, which is the strongest squad, um, which is most likely to win the division. I don't think the argument would be that Tottenham's is the best. Um, therefore, you know, Mourinho's statement that they they were. There were little ponies in this title race. Well, probably an exaggeration. You can see where he's coming from. He doesn't want the pressure heaped on them because his argument is that they are two players away from being 
properly competitive um, for the Premier League title. And he'd like to get them in January. As we said in last week's podcast, whether Daniel Levy will allow him to get to have that spending with their financial results being so um, uh, debilitating um, for the last financial year. And although we'll have spectators in the stadium for this game, we're only going to have a few spectators in the in the stadium. So we don't have any guarantees when the when that full uh, ground naming rights lane is is allowed to to generate the income it was designed to generate. Um, there there are a lot of question marks about this and and therefore I I think Mourinho will be happy to get out of that game with a draw and hope to go for a win. I'd be surprised if he goes aggressively for the game from the start. So when you say the game plan might be to play cautiously, is that a euphemism for parking the bus? I don't think he parks he he'll park the bus in any of these games. I think he he plays with a defensive structure and wants the other teams to come on to them so that they can attack on the break because they're they're attacking on the break is the the pace they have and also distribution from midfield within Dombelli in there and Harry Kane in that withdrawn um center forward position that he's been using is extremely effective it's obvious that Tottenham's best use of the weapons they have at present is when opponents come to them. They can score goals through possession, but also look at the defensive uh, issues they have. I mean, we talked recently that he wants a faster centre-back and a left-footed centre-back. His first choice defensive pairing is Toby Alderweireld and Eric Dyer, both of whom are not particularly quick. He pushes the full-backs up. Therefore, if you um, try and play dominant possession, like Manchester City-style dominant possession with those centre-backs, you're going to be exposed. And Mourinho doesn't like being exposed. There's a, there's a big difference between parking the bus and uh, playing with a, a mid-block or a, or a low-block and trying to take the team, opposition teams onto you rather than just sit and, and play for a nil-nil. OK, you're on the spot. What's the score going to be? <laughs> 1-1. One, one. I'll go for 1-1. One, one. It's always the safe bet when, when having to do score predictions. Yeah, Castle's on the fence. <laughs> so that's our um, analysis of the North London Derby. Uh, enjoy your weekend football, everyone. Uh, obviously, this being the second podcast of the week, it's time for the infamous Donkey Award. And this week, we're going to dedicate it to um, the UK government's education secretary, Gavin Williamson. And we're going to call it the Gavin Williamson Delusionally Arrogant Award. And the reason for this is, I'm just going to read you the quote and you'll know why. He said today regarding the um, vaccination process, which is due to begin in England. I reckon we've got the very best people in this country. We've also got the best medical regulator, much better than the French have, much better than the Belgians have much better than the Americans have. This doesn't surprise me at all because we are a much better country than every single one of them. And what he failed to recognise was that the actual vaccination which he was talking about has been developed jointly with an American pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, and is being produced in Belgium. So factually incorrect, but also arrogantly delusional. And in football, We've got some brilliant candidates 
of those who are arrogantly delusional as well. Uh, Duncan, I'm just going to open the envelope here, as uh, is our tradition here on the Transfer Window podcast. Proving a bit difficult this week, but uh, thankful I've got the strength. And our candidates are Nicholas Bentner, the legendary Arsenal striker um, who once described himself as one of the best players in the world. I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, we felt very, very strongly, Duncan, about including uh, supersized Sam Allardyce in the nominations uh, for his claim that he would probably and could have done a very good job as manager of Real Madrid, but because his name's Sam Allardyce and not Sam Allardici, uh, he was never given the chance. So we figured it was a, a good time to fire up the Granada for Big Sam and send him not to Granada, but to Madrid and uh, stake his claim, given that uh, Cesar is in trouble there. Let's see how that goes. Uh, but third, and probably my favourite, and I hope for those who um, are not old enough or cognitive of the great Ali McLeod, Scotland's manager ahead of the 1970 World Cup finals, who absolutely brainwashed a nation into believing they would win the World Cup. Duncan, I'm going to hand over to you to award the donkey because clearly this is going to be a very, very um, prestigious award this time, given um, the candidates available to you. Um, yeah, I was just say let's hope that uh, Gavin Williamson is right on one part of that about how good the UK medical regulator is and that they haven't actually decided to go too quickly with this vaccine when uh, other countries are being more careful. Um, but uh, yeah, Ali McLeod, I, I think, doesn't quite qualify because I'm not sure it was our arrogance there. It was just pure delusion. Stupidity. <laughs> Stupidity. <laughs> Although the, um, the the song with which uh, we went to the World Cup um, was sung, I think, and written by Andy Cameron. Am I right? Fam- St- still one I can't listen to <laughs> after all these years. When we win the World Cup because Scotland is the greatest football team. Football team. Yes. I believed it. That's the problem. I was nine, but I believed it. <laughs> and when, was it? Was it Ari Han or was it Johnny Rep who scored a second Holland goal, which sent us out? Can't remember. If it, anyway, when it, I was me and my younger brother Liam were crying in my mother's back garden because we believed Ali McLeod and we believed uh, we believed Andy Cameron's song that we were going to win the World Cup. And you've never forgiven either of them. If you introduced me to them now, I would tell them exactly what I thought to their face. But I think that's probably <laughs> going to be impossible. <laughs> Um, Sam Allardyce definitely fits this um, criteria of uh, arrogance and, and delusion um, but he's won quite a few of these already so I think Nicholas Bentner in this particular case has the strongest candidacy this is him in 2010 if you ask me if I'm one of the best strikers in the world I say yes because I believe it um, six years later he was joining Nottingham Forest on a free transfer um, so that is a, a special degree of delusion, and uh, and he gets his uh, his trophy for that. Well, I'm sure he'll be st- 
sticking that on the fireplace beside his paddy power underpants um, that he got paid quite a lot of money for wearing at the Euros and then revealing them. Uh, I did fine by UEFA as well. Um, so, uh, well done, Nicholas Bentner. Uh, you are the surprise winner of this week's donkey because, let's face it, there are not many footballers less famous than you who have can claim the particular prize. Uh, that's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. And if you have, then please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on all your notifications and you'll be the first to know when the next edition comes out. Also, you know that we love to engage with you guys and have a discussion outside of the broadcast. So on that basis, please get in touch through our platforms, which are Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at at Transfer Podcast. Individually, Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. We welcome your comments as always. Until next week. Please enjoy your football this weekend. Stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.